Good evening to you all. I'm speaking not in my usual tenor voice um, because I had a spring cold come upon me. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jim Partridge. I'm one of the elders here at City, and it's really my joy to preach for the first time in this building. Um, first time in a while at City, but um, I'm very, very glad to be here. And I'm glad to be sharing in this passage, uh, which I'll read in a couple of moments. Um, I believe it was probably back in the 80s when I had the opportunity to preach on this passage. I was intrigued by, as you'll see, its emphasis on how then should we live? What, what does it mean to live a virtuous life? And that made me think back to uh, uh, 46 years ago, right now. Um, I um, had just gotten my Boy Scout Eagle Scout. I was Mr. Boy Scout. And um, I had just uh, been conferred the highest honor in the Boy Scouts of America. And um, if you were to ask me how I would have defined how then should we live, it would probably be by the scout oath that is in the front of your bulletin there, which I still have ingrained in my brain, hopefully. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country, uh, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. And then, of course, there's the scout law. There's these 12 points that we have drilled into us. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. So that was, for me, what it meant to live a virtuous life. And that really comes out of, um, I think, probably, a form of Greek stoicism and that's really the context in which the Apostle Peter was writing when he wrote the words that we're going to read uh, shortly. A Greek Stoicism which would say, yes, there is a virtuous life, but it is to be achieved by one's own effort. There's no outside uh, help, so to speak, in living a virtuous life. The book of Second Peter, which we just started last week, I was hoping to hear John McComb's message, but uh, it's not posted yet, but... Second Peter essentially teaches that the grace of God in Christ, it is the grace of God in Christ, that transforms and empowers a virtuous life in the face of opposition, whether that be persecution, false teaching, which Second Peter will address in chapter 2, or our own sin. And this passage that we're going to read is really, I was amazed as I was studying at how massive a theological statement these verses that we will read are. In the Reformed world, we talk about what are called the doctrines of grace, the big words that you hear thrown around sometimes in uh, reading or preaching or whatever, justification, sanctification, glorification. All those things are really contained in this passage. All the way from eternity this way, election, predestination before the foundation of the world. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you were elected before the foundation of the world. And then if you get, go down to verse 11, we'll get there. It talks about eternal life, glorification, and everything in between is essentially addressed in this passage. And yet the focus will be on living a faithful Christian life which is the doctrine of sanctification. 
I also want to address a little bit tonight about the elephant in the room, so to speak, and that is the gap between what you may hear me say and what you may believe today and how your heart is tomorrow morning and this week. There's a gap, isn't there, between what we believe and how we live. Well, finally, this passage culminates in verse 10, and you could look there if you'd like. We're going to read it in just a moment. And a strong exhortation to, as the word says, confirm your calling and election. Another passage, or another translation says, making your calling and election sure. And that forms the basis for the heart of my message for you tonight, which is this. Confirm your call to Jesus by cultivating your union with him. So let me read this text and then uh, we will affirm that this is the word of the Lord and then we'll pray again. This is 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may, have, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, this is your precious word, and we thank you for uh, the scope of it and the truth of it. And I pray that, Father, you, by your spirit, would make this word meaningful and helpful for this, your people. I pray that you would give me strength to preach this word Faithfully, Father, I feel weak. I ask that you would give me strength. I pray that you would forgive my sins and use this word for your good purpose. We pray together in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So we're going to walk through uh, some of this passage. Um, we're not going to go verse by verse, but... Um, You'll notice how it kind of breaks down in the verse uh, seven or so verses. And it reminded me as I was reading verses three and four and then verses five through seven 
reminded me of a couple very well-known hymns, songs that may play in your head that relate to the Christian life. One of them, of course, is one of the best-known hymns in the uh, Christian world, and that is Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You may know that that was written by uh, John Newton, who was the uh, former Navy uh, seaman who uh, was employed in the slave trade before he came to Christ. And he wrote wonderfully of the grace of Christ, the grace of the gospel, the extravagant grace of the gospel. Well, there's another song that you may well know. It's called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the last stanza of that uh, says, um, uh, senior moment here, uh, help me out. What's the last verse of when I survey? Uh, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Friends, there's not only the radical grace of the gospel, but we also have to realize that the Bible gives us a radical call to discipleship, doesn't it? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Matthew 11. He was essentially saying, come and rest. But that same Jesus also said, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he wrote about the cost of discipleship, said if anyone names the name of Christ, he must come and die. So there's coming and resting and there's coming and dying. Bonhoeffer also in that book, The Cost of Discipleship, said that described the tension in the gospel in this way. He said that only those who believe can obey. But the other truth, the other side of the proposition is that only those who obey can believe. I want you to think about that for a moment. Let's go back to our passage here because if you look at verses 3 and 4, there's this beautiful, beautiful description of God's work. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. My seminary professor, uh, who taught me... Um, on this passage, talked about this passage as being a beautiful example of what's called the indicative. The indicative is the idea of, of something described, objective truth, that's objective truth. Is there anything asked of you from that description of God's work? No, there isn't. This is a description of who a believer is in Jesus Christ and the work of Christ on their behalf. But then when, what comes after that? Start at verse 5. We have a list of what's called the imperative. The imperatives. Adding all these things to your faith. Supplementing your faith. Let me just go back and say, 
excuse me, that when um, Peter talks about partakers of the divine nature, it's a weird phrase. We have to remember that Peter was speaking to an audience that likely was very in touch with Greek thought. And Peter really, uh, though he was a Palestinian fisherman, um, was used by God to speak in the language of the people there. And he's using, in this passage, in a number of places, uh, terms that Greeks would have understood. And partakers of, partakers of the divine nature is one of them. I believe this is actually a reference. The work of the Spirit is not referenced overtly in this passage, but I think that that's, uh, that's actually a reference to the work of the Spirit uh, in uniting believers to Jesus Christ. So these two songs, Amazing Grace, the grace of the gospel, the extravagant grace of the gospel, and the other song, the radical discipleship uh, aspect of the gospel. Which is it? Are we to come and rest? Or are we to come and die? The answer is yes. The answer, the problem is, here's the problem. The problem is we tend in our sin to turn up the volume on one of those two songs. We turn up the grace side, right? I can do what I want because I can be forgiven. Now we would never say that. But that's, I think, and, and there are heresies in the church that essentially say that. Grace in Jesus, full free forgiveness means how you live, you can always be forgiven. And then there's the other side of that coin, and that is the other, the radical discipleship that we need to be doing the things that verses 5 through 7 say. We need to be focused on growing in Christ which sometimes makes us feel exhausted, right? Our sin can lead us to turn up the volume on one or the other. And it also illustrates before what I, I mentioned before, this gap in our lives, the gap between what we believe and how we live. What we believe in verses 3 and 4, wonderful theology, but sometimes we struggle to believe that, do we not? And later in the passage, there's a reference to those who forget that they were uh, saved, that they were cleansed from their former sins. We're forgetful people. Matt Kerber mentioned that this morning. That's the danger that Bonhoeffer talked about of cheap grace, what he called cheap grace, people who understood the gospel but did not live it out. There's the other side of that gap, uh, how, how we live. We can live overemphasizing grace. We can also overemphasize obedience. It's called legalism. It's called moralism. It's works righteousness. And Peter's not talking about that. This is not a new problem, right? This has been struggled with in the church for millennia. But it is a struggle that I believe this passage really addresses in terms of a solution, which we'll get to in just a moment. I just want to mention, as I was reading and preparing, um, I ran across a story about the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy. Now, I'm not much of a reader, 
So I've not read Tolstoy, but I'm sure many of you have. War and Remembrance, right? And Anna Karenina. 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 Um, sorry, I boxed that one. Um, but Leo Tolstoy apparently um, was converted to Christ late in his life. And he was intrigued with the call of the gospel, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet Tolstoy struggled mightily with living out what he found to be true in the gospel. He struggled with this tension between grace and obedience. He wrote in a letter to a friend near the end of his life, he said, in regards to the Sermon on the Mount and living the Christian life, it is true that I have not fulfilled one thousandth part of them, and I am ashamed of this. But I have failed to fulfill them, not because I did not wish to, but because I was unable to. Maybe you can resonate with Tolstoy. Living the Christian life is not an easy thing. I still remember 46 years ago, in just a couple weeks, I will have my spiritual birthday. And the young woman that God used to lead me to Christ, who was a fellow high schooler, one of the things she said to me soon after I came to Christ was, she said, Jimmy, she's one of the few people that could call me Jimmy. She said, Jimmy, the Christian life is the most wonderful life, but it is the hardest life to live. And I think she was probably getting at that gap between what she believed and how she lived. So what can bridge that gap? Friends, the doctrine of union with Christ which is not explicitly mentioned in this passage, but I think is, is embedded in it, that doctrine bridges that gap. That doctrine, which says that Christ is in you and that you are in Christ through faith, that doctrine allows us to sing both of those songs, the song of extravagant grace, the song of radical discipleship, and turn up the volume on both. Full volume. It enables us to dwell in that indicative, verses 3 and 4, and also live out the imperatives, verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> if you look at verse 8, I think it's actually kind of a tangential reference to this idea of union with Christ. Verse 8 says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reference to relationship, is it not? And that's union with Christ. When we cultivate this union with our Savior, we're promised in verse 8 what we all want, don't we? Effectiveness, fruit. Do you all desire that? The way to, to that goal is through cultivating your union with Christ. And then verse 9 tells us that when we don't cultivate that union, what happens? We forget. We forget. And we become spiritually blind. The Greek word there for blind is what I'm doing right now. It's not being physically blind. It's closing my eyes. I can't see. Spiritual blindness. Not wanting to know the truth or running away from the truth. That's what the spiritual blindness is. And we forget.
forget that we were cleansed from our former sins. That can be a reference back to most believers in the early church. As soon as they professed faith in Christ, what happened? They were baptized. And so this is a reference perhaps back to their baptism. We all need to remember our baptism if you're a believer in Christ. We literally forget who we are. We forget that indicative. So friends, verse 10 is there again as my encouragement to you and to myself. Confirm your call to Jesus by cultivating your union with him. And don't miss those little promises. One of the great and precious promises is given right there in verses 9 and 10. What? You will never fall. Perseverance of the saints is referenced there. And then an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Glorification. Now let me try to make this a little bit practical. Um, I hope this is just not uh, theology that's up there. We need this to be theology that's here and that's lived out tomorrow morning, right? So, think of the sins that you may struggle with. There are uh, sins of all varieties. There are besetting sins. For men, I think of sins of pornography and sexual sin. Um, for women, it may be anything from security, fear, anxiety. For all of us, um, there are besetting sins. How do we deal with our sin? Well, one thing is to remember these two pillars of the doctrine of union with Christ. And the first is, if you've confessed Christ, friends, you are in Christ. You are free <clears throat> from the penalty of sin. You've been cleansed by the work of your Savior. You're covered by His righteousness. So when you are tempted to fall and you remember that, it can help you realize that that relationship can hold you up and can turn you to Him rather than running away from Him. Secondly, Christ is in you. What's that mean? That means that your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life of obedience, dwells within you. Anything that the world, the flesh, or the devil were to throw at you can be dealt with. First John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We're free from the power of sin through our union with Christ. You are in Christ, only those who believe can obey. Christ is in you, only those who obey can believe. Now I'm speaking and have been speaking to you all as if you have all confessed Christ, and I hope you have. But I want to assume that perhaps you may be sitting there and you don't know if you have come and you've been united by faith to Jesus Christ. If that's the case, I would love to speak with you afterwards. I'd love you to speak with someone about this idea because 
Union with Christ is the key to living in this life, balancing those two voices, those two songs, and enjoying God. I think it's the key to all of that. I would like to close with what voice I have left. <clears throat> with the assurance of pardon that we read before. Because this passage, if you look at it, it's just three verses. Speaking of abiding in Christ, and that is, we didn't have time to go into that tonight, but abiding is kind of the stuff of union with Christ. But if you look at these three little verses, you see the grace and the demand and the solution all together. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That is the most gracious statement in the world. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There's demand there. Jesus says, these are my commandments, that you love one another as I've loved you. Anybody doing that perfectly? I don't think so. And then finally, these things I have spoken to you, that what? My joy may be where? In you. And that your joy would be full. I pray for you, brothers and sisters, that we could all grow in the knowledge of this union with our Savior. Let me pray.